ICMA University is pleased to present this online program entitled, The Two Pandemics, Systemic Racism and COVID-19. We are very pleased to welcome all of you to this presentation. I would like to draw everyone's attention to the links box located on the left of your screen. To download a PDF copy of the presentation slide, simply click on the link and a separate web browser window will open so that you can view, save, or print. The webinar evaluation link is also in this area. You must be logged into ICMA University to access the survey from here, but you can also find it on your dashboard after today's program by clicking on the program title. It is my pleasure to introduce today's presenters, Leon Andrews, Lovely Warren, Serena Cruz, Brian Oakes, and Dr. Marie Peoples. Leon Andrews is the first director of the National League of Cities Race, Equity, and Leadership Program, a position he took on in 2014 after serving for eight years as the Senior Fellow and Program Director for NLC's Institute for Youth Education and Families. His extensive career has included positions at the United States Department of Justice, the United States Public Interest Research Group, and PricewaterhouseCoopers, among many others. He is also a published author and a presenter at several national and international conferences and forums, as well as a board member of organizations such as Change Lab Solutions and the National Network for Youth. We'd like to recognize and thank the co-hosts of this webinar. And now I'll introduce our panelists for today. For today. Lovely Ann Warren has served as Mayor of Rochester, New York since January 2014 and is currently in her second four-year term after her re-election in 2017. As the city's first female and the youngest mayor in modern times, her administrative agenda is focused on job creation, fostering safer and more vibrant neighborhoods, and improving educational opportunities for Rochester's residents. Prior to this role, she served as a Rochester City Council member for several years and was elected president in 2010. She is also a member of the African American Mayors Association Board of Trustees, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and the NLC's Youth Education and Families Committee. Serena Cruz is Executive Director of the Virginia Garcia Memorial Foundation and is responsible for overseeing fundraising, public relations, advocacy, and community partnership activities in support of the Virginia Garcia Memorial Health Center. Prior to this role, she served eight years on the Maltmouth County Board of Commissioners representing North and Northeast Portland. She is also an active member of several community organizations, serving as a trustee for the Collins Foundation, a Founders Circle, and board member of 99 Girlfriends, a member of the Metro Housing Bond Oversight Committee, and a board member for the Oregon Historical Society. Brian Oakes is the first Chief Equity Officer for the City of Austin, Texas. And he's responsible for working with city leadership and local communities to create an equity framework and facilitate dialogue and organizational practices that support the development and adoption of equity as a shared value. Prior to his arrival in Austin, he served as the Vice President of Health Equity for 14 years at the American Heart Association's Southwest Affiliate, and has also held positions in the Office of State Dep Dora Olivo, 
the Texas Healthy Kids Corporation, and the Texas Medical Foundation. He is an active member of several boards and committees, including the Central Texas Diversity Council and the KLRU Community Advisory Board. Dr. Marie Peoples is the Deputy County Manager of Coconino County, Arizona, and is charged with leading the justice and human service-related departments as well as countywide initiatives. Prior to this role, she served as the Chief Health Officer for the County's Health Services District. Her career began as a substance abuse therapist within Missouri's correctional system, and she has worked with several of Missouri's prisons with a variety of offender demographics and rehabilitative programs. She is also a proud staff member of the University of Phoenix College of Doctoral Studies and member of the Northern Arizona University's Institutional Review Board. Speakers, welcome to the program. Thank you for those introductions, and good morning and good afternoon to everyone. Again, my name is Leon Andrews with the National League of Cities, the director for our Race, Equity, and Leadership Department. I'm glad to be today's moderator. I'd like to start by acknowledging our moment of where we are as we talk about our two pandemics. With over 3.5 million cases and 138,000 deaths, the coronavirus pandemic continues to impact every state and every community across this country. Elected officials at all levels of government have been calling on the Center for Disease Control, the federal government, to collect data that's disaggregated by race, ethnicity, and gender to see the true impact of COVID-19 on communities across this country. The data has consistently showed that this pandemic is disproportionately impacting communities of color, in particular, the Black, Latinx, and indigenous communities. Even before the coronavirus, we knew that race was still the strongest predictor of one's success in this country. From infant mortality to life expectancy, you just have to look at the data. The legacy of institutional and structural racism is playing out in front of our eyes in the midst of this pandemic. COVID-19 is the virus, but systems failure is the crisis and local leaders must call it out, request data, and make data-informed decisions in this moment and moving forward about what citywide initiatives should be prioritized. Yet, this is not the only pandemic cities are facing, hence the purpose of this webinar, two pandemics. Local leaders are also now responding to uprisings in their cities. Protests are happening in over a 1,000 large and small cities across the country. The tragic events of the last month serve as a horrific reminder, a reminder of how important it is for cities to acknowledge and take meaningful action on racial injustice. These uprisings are not just about George Floyd, Rhea Milton, or Rashad Brooks, or Breonna Taylor, Amon Aubrey, Sandra Bland, Sam DuBose, Alton Sterling, Philanda Castile, Freddie Gray, Lacroix McDonald, Walter Scott, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, and so many other tragic moments that have gained national attention and those that have not. This moment shines a floodlight on the institutional and structural racism that has plagued this country since its founding. 
In the last five years, Real was created. Our team has reflected on the tragedies of Ferguson, Baltimore, Charleston, Falcon Heights, Baton Rouge, Dallas, Charlottesville. We have brought together community activists, academics, and local leaders to examine lessons learned from these incidents. Our mission is to strengthen local leaders' knowledge and capacity to eliminate racial disparities, to heal racial tensions, and to build more equitable communities. We have created opportunities for training and technical assistance, network building for our local leaders, um, as well as recognizing the intersectionality of these conversations to so many other special populations. Our theory of change is that we believe the work needs to start first with acknowledging why change is needed, and also then begin to look at proposed solutions that's not about transactional but transformational with the shared urgency of the moment. And so that is the question for us now is I wonder, is this moment an inflection point in our country's history? Racism is killing us. Racism is killing our cities. If this moment will be an inflection point, local leaders must lead. The National League of Cities, we are committed to helping local leaders respond with empathy and effectively during this time of crisis and beyond. We also acknowledge the need to be very explicit about race. As I mentioned earlier, when you look at race from infant mortality to life expectancy, race is still the strongest predictor of one's success. So whether we're talking about our educational system or we're talking about our criminal justice system, unemployment, as we now see the continued high rates of unemployment during this COVID-19 pandemic, or even our housing and the implications of the foreclosures and evictions that we'll see that will continue to play out if there's not support to really help families. Race still continues to be the strongest predictor of one's success. Advancing racial equity is a national effort, though the work will look different in individual cities, towns, and villages. This is not a one-time fix, but a sustained investment in the work of achieving equity. This work takes time. It continues to evolve and requires a long-term commitment to the work. We have partnered with a lot of good colleagues that bring in tools and resources. This is an example of a tool that really is important of centering the voices of our community, particularly our BIPOC, our black, indigenous, and people of color. Every city needs to commit to their individual community's needs, and the approach to racial equity will look different. The solution includes a comprehensive approach that looks across policies, practices, and procedures. Centering equity, it, uh, centering equity is a commitment across agencies and systems. This includes criminal justice, public safety, employment, and access to housing and education and healthcare. City leaders have an opportunity um, with COVID and the protests to change how we, are, uh, how we are responding to this moment and in this time. I'm excited that we have with us um, a great panel to really have that discussion. I want to bring forth our first panelist to begin to bring um, the local voice of what this looks like. Uh, Mayor Warren, as you heard from the introduction, um, uh, has done a number of things in this space. One of them that I didn't hear an introduction, I want to also acknowledge is that she also serves as our chair of our Race, Equity, and Leadership Council at the National League of Cities. 
um, for the last two years, and so brings her leadership and commitment and passion to this work. So I'm glad to have Mayor Warren with us. And as moderator, I am charged um, to create a space to ask you three questions. You know, knowing our conversations, Mayor, we may the, we may not follow the rules depending on where this conversation goes, but <laughs> we will try our best to follow the uh, be be respectful of what we're supposed to do. So I'm going to start with the first question. Let's see where the conversation goes with the time we have. Um, so the first question for you is, how is Rochester leading the racial equity conversations within your city? Well, thank you, Leanne, and I want to thank you for your leadership um, with the Real Council for the National League of Cities, and you have been a great uh, partner for mayors across the country and cities across the country, especially in this time of racial and social unrest. I also want to thank ICMA for this panel discussion and giving us the opportunity to talk about the issues in the pandemic or the two issues that are facing our community at this time. Uh, the City of Rochester is leading the racial equity conversation through the implementation of the National League of Cities Real Initiative. Uh, this program was implemented in 2019 as a joint proclamation between the Rochester City Council and the Chamber of Commerce. As part of this commitment to dismantle racism and institution, institute equity, uh, change teams were created to represent each city department. Uh, these teams underwent extensive training to help our employees better understand race, structural and systematic racism, as well as equity. Our change team members are now developing action plans to implement equity into our day-to-day -day operations over the next three years, and the city is working in partnership with the Greater Rochester Black Agenda Group to help community members of African descent to begin the healing process of trauma and racism through what's called the emotional emancipation circles. There are emotional emancipation circles for our youth as well as for black men and the general public. Leaders of the city's real initiative help to foster a community chapter that meets monthly and is working on a collective proposal to bring four workshops to the Rochester for the benefit of organizations outside of city government. Our city's real team is also working with other municipalities, uh, those that are in Bellevue, Washington, in the city of Syracuse, two local towns on best practices for uh, equity and organizational culture and changes, and my senior management team, city council members, and our police accountability board, the Monroe County Executive, as well as myself, uh, will be participating in the Undoing Racism workshop uh, this fall as part of a way to combat inequities and to really start the narrative of racial equity in our city. And then just this past um, month, we instituted a partnership with the County of Monroe to really look at racial and social equity on a county level, because what we found is that we can do what we want to do on a city level, but however, if we do not have a collective impact and we do not do it in an intentional way to change how people feel about racism and structural and institutional racism across the board, then we would be just doing a little bit when we can be doing a whole lot across uh, the different spectrums when it comes down to racism. And so we have our hand in many different pots, but our focus really is to lift as we climb and make sure that no part of our community is left behind. Yeah. Thank you for, I mean, thank you for just giving a, a very high level of all the work that, real, uh, that Rochester is doing, Mayor, and, and 
I know if we had the time, we could dig in a lot deeper into each of those. And one of the things that stood out to me, particularly in the moment, is the uh, that emotional emancipation circles. Um, you yes. know, because there's a lot, of, a lot of conversation around creating spaces for healing and what city leaders at city le- cities can do in, in really um, creating spaces for what healing looks like. Um, and just curious, am I just a, as a follow-up, um, and if there's more you could say about how that's playing out and, and how you see that as part of a, a city's commitment to, to really what racial healing that needs to happen. So, you know, one of the things that I really found out is that, you know, black people and people of color in general, or a lot of people, we grow up talking about race and thinking about it as part of our daily walk in life. And uh, we can all remember the first time we experienced it. Um, However, our white counterparts have not. And it's a tough discussion to have with people that do not walk in the same shoes that you walk in. And so the emotional circles and emancipation circles is really to take back the power to really understand that uh, we have a purpose in our uh, in being here, but also to let people know that um, the things that we have been through is actually empowering. It's not to bring us down or to uh, degrade us and to make us feel bad about ourselves, but really to understand that we went through all of these challenges and the strongest survived. And that strength that we have embedded in us from generation to generation will be what carries us through. But we are tired of of facing and continuing to face the same things over and over again. My grandparents um, grew up uh, in King Street, South Carolina. They grew up in the Jim Crow South. They moved to Rochester in the Great Migration era uh, in the 1970s. And my father was an undocumented immigrant. And so I understand the challenges that uh, he came here from Trinidad and, and Tobago. The challenges that the previous generation, that my grandparents and my mom's generation faced um, are the same challenges we face today, and we see it playing out across the board in cities, uh, both large, mid-sized, and small. They should not be the same challenges that our children continue to face, and we want to deal with this issue of racism in America and the inequities that have been built by government once and for all, to level the playing field. Well, thank you. Thanks for uh, bringing that into the space and just naming that so clearly. Um, and, uh, and so let me ask in that space of challenges, I, I made in my remarks that even before coronavirus, uh, we knew that race was still the strongest predictor. And when we talk about COVID-19, it's, it's the virus, but it's really the system's failure is the crisis. And so I'm I'm wondering how, as you are looking at, you know, these two pandemics, the COVID-19 in this case, what are some of the the biggest challenges that's facing your city as you're navigating through uh, COVID-19? So on a government level, this health crisis has turned into a fiscal crisis because we are funded by a three, you know, in three ways. You know, we're funded by property taxes, sales tax, 
in the revenue that we receive from our state and federal government. And two of those, uh, meaning sales tax and the funding from state and local, uh, state and federal government, are you know being threatened because of the crisis. And so our property tax um, is 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 a way that we are able to fund our city, but it's not enough to be able to continue to provide the essential services to our residents. When you look at the fact that residents, when they call a police officer, they want one to show up. When they call a firefighter, they want one to show up. When it's time to plow the snow, they expect the plow to show up. When it's time to pick up the trash, they expect someone to be there. And so we have to balance that at the, and also make sure that we are providing for our essential workers and creating a safe space for them to be able to come into work and do so effectively so to serve our residents and our customers. And so we had to really change the way we do business on a, um, you know, uh, immediately to deal with the COVID crisis. At the same time, we have our children that are in school, and even though the city of Rochester are not in charge of the schools, when the schools decided to shut down, most of our kids were on free and reduced lunch across the board. So we had to figure out a way to provide nutrition to our children and families at the same time while dealing with this pandemic. And fortunately enough for us, we have a great local food bank, Food Link, that partnered with us as well as the County of Monroe and the school district to distribute meals. And we have continued to do that in, in, since the beginning, and we've distributed over a million meals to children and families in our city. Uh, we had to literally close City Hall to the public and find new ways to interact with our citizens by implementing drop boxes, transitioning from public meetings that were in person to virtual meetings. On top of that, we, had, we were in the middle of doing our budget at the time that this crisis hit. And so now that we're in recovery, we're trying to figure out ways to make sure that our businesses come back even better and stronger than before. We have provided over 500 um, grants to our local businesses. We launched a new website called Jumpstarting the Rock, which provides um, support for businesses, as well as a campaign called Protect Your Circle, which is uh, directly aimed at black and brown communities that have been impacted by the pandemic. And when we started to look at the numbers, we found that the people that were affected in our community the most, of course, as the same in um, other cities, were black and brown communities, and really having to have the discussion with them about how protecting your grandma and your um, abuela and all of those people are so important in how you we all play a role in making sure that that happens. And so as we look at the challenges that the COVID-19 played on our city, it really, really had us change everything at the drop of a hat and still try to provide for those essential services to our residents. Yeah, yeah, wow. Um, I mean, it's helpful both to kind of hear how you had to quickly respond as, as a local government, um, but also the, just kind of how this is impacting the day-to-day -day lives of people within Rochester um, and recognizing that, that it dis can disproportionately impact, you know, black, indigenous, people of color, and how are you accommodating and thinking about the intentionality there. So many questions I could follow up with, but I also just want to, you know, um, pivot because while we could talk more a lot about 
COVID-19, that pandemic, I mean, that by itself is its own conversation. But, you know, we all experienced what we saw with the, with the protests, the risings, the, 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 the uprisings that happened. And, and that, yeah, I know Rochester was not immune to all of that. And so, um, uh, so in spite of all of the great work that is happening within the city, as you were sharing earlier about how you've been centering racial equity, I'm curious how you've been having, how you've been handling the tension, the racial tension that have followed, um, followed those, like the, the George Floyd and uh, Rashad Brooks and Breonna Taylor. Like how is that also playing out in context of the COVID-19 and the pandemic there? I can tell you, um, Leon, it has been a challenge and it's been very tough for African-American mayors, especially African-American female mayors in this country dealing with the social unrest. Uh, for me personally, um, being the first vice president of the African-American Mayors Association and seeing and understanding and hearing and the hurt and frustration of our residents across the country, we know that we have challenges in the system. And many times the system was designed to get the results that it is exactly getting. Um, one of the things in the city of Rochester is that we didn't start to deal with the challenges and the issues around um, racial tension just when, um, unfortunately, George Floyd was killed. We have been doing this work for many years. Um, having an African-American police chief, he and I both collectively have been holding officers that step outside of the bounds accountable and even letting them go when they need to be let go. We here started the uh, city council, instituted uh, a civilian uh, police accountability board. Um, it is currently being challenged in court that would give that police accountability board the power to really oversee and reprimand officers, which is against, at this point in time, uh, against state law. But um, so we have those challenges. Um, but we also know that um, we had to do a lot more when it comes down to making sure that we have the documentation and the data to show that there may be some disparities within a system. And so we, a number of years ago, we adopted President Obama's 21st century policing program, and we implemented those changes to policies and procedures. We put in um, and, and made all of our officers that are, that are on, the, on the ground uh, wear body-worn cameras and deploy body-worn cameras uh, and have the most robust body-worn camera turn-on policy uh, in basically the state of New York. And so my goal here is not just to deal with issues of racial unjust in times of turmoil, but to intentionally deal with it every day that we wake up because the fact of the matter is, is that this isn't something that just happened. This isn't something that has been going on. I remember the first time that, for me, I recognized the, 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 the overhandedness in the racism, and that, for me, was with Rodney King. And I was in high school. 
And so now we're over, I believe, 20 years later still facing and dealing with the same thing. And so I understand the hurt and the frustration. I just want everyone to know that we are in this together, and by working collectively together, we can change the outcomes for the people that we know and love. And so we've had peaceful protests. We've had a riot. We've had, um, you know, we still continue to go through the, the challenges and the process, but we have opened the lines of communications to say, okay, how do we do better? How do we work collectively to bring forth the change that we want to see? And what are we willing to do, both government and people, to make sure that the outcomes for our people are different? Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you, Mayor Warren. I mean, I, I, could, I have so many more questions that, um, that I could ask you here in our conversation. I also want to acknowledge for those that are listening, uh, there may be questions you have for Mayor Warren or myself. We will be getting to questions after we get through, um, uh, continue our discussion and get through our other panelists. So really appreciate you, Mayor Warren, setting the tone for the conversation. Um, and with that, I'd like to turn it over to Serena Cruz, uh, who will share some of the work that's happening uh, um, um, with the Virginia Garcia Memorial Health Center. Uh, Serena? Thanks so much, Leon. Um, thank you for setting an amazing context for this discussion today, for your leadership, and for the work of REAL. And I don't even know how to follow Mayor Warren. Um, you are so inspirational, exactly the leader that we need at local level for this time. Um, and I only hope that we find a way to bring voice to the message you you lead with, lift as we climb, and leaving no one behind. It, it resonated so deeply with me. It's such an honor to be with city and county leaders throughout the country. I feel like I'm at home as a former county commissioner. And so uh, I'll take just a few minutes to tell you a little bit about who we are at Virginia Garcia and our connection uh, to these issues of systemic racism and how the pandemic reflects uh, those issues in our community. So Virginia Garcia was founded in 1975. Uh, Virginia was six years old. She was traveling from Texas to California to Oregon uh, with her family as they did every year following the crops. In 1975, she got a cut on her foot in California. They arrived in Oregon. It was a simple cut. They sought treatment, um, and the care that they received wasn't culturally connected. Uh, the folks who treated her didn't understand that her family lived in a migrant camp without running water and refrigeration. So they sent her back with a prescription for penicillin that needed to be rehydrated and refrigerated. And instead of that very simple treatment, um, on June 17th in 1975, Virginia died of this very treatable infection. The power of her story and the power of our organization is in the communities coming together. Latino community leaders, civic, civic leaders, uh, VISTA volunteers, it was the mid-70s, a time of amazing political uh, uh, energy, not unlike today's. Uh, within a matter of days, the community had rallied and uh, asked the nuns at the Sisters of Providence, the hospital where she died, uh, to invest in support for migrant farm health care for migrant farm workers. 
two weeks later, an MOU was signed, and that very summer we began delivering care uh, out of a three-car garage uh, with volunteer with volunteer providers. Today, um, let's see, oh, oh, there we go. Um, our mission is that uh, we will provide high-quality, comprehensive, culturally appropriate primary care to the communities of Washington and Yamhill counties with a special emphasis on migrant and seasonal farm workers and others with barriers to care. What that looks like today is that we're the largest nonprofit community health center serving the state of Oregon. We have comprehensive primary dental mental health care in five uh, primary care clinics, six dental clinics, five school-based health centers, a women's clinic, and a mobile clinic where we deliver care directly where our patients live and work. Um, very every summer we go back to the migrant camps um, and continue to deliver care there as well as in the schools. Uh, we have we serve over 52,000 patients every single year. Uh, there are a very diverse population that we serve with over 60 languages being spoken by our patients and 98% of our patients have low incomes. So what that means when you put a pandemic um, in terms of what we're witnessing uh, at our at our front lines, um, we're seeing the racial impacts of COVID very keenly, um, and we're feeling the social determinants of health and the social supports um, that people are missing very keenly as well. So first, uh, just a quick look at the state demographics. Um, what you can see very clearly is that our Latinx population is very overrepresented uh, in the COVID positive 19. While there's about 13.4% of the population that is Latinx in Oregon, 37% of all uh, positive tests are among Latinos. That means that you're nearly three times more likely to get a positive test if you are Latino. Um, than if you're white in this state. Um, and it also carries through to our other populations. The African-American community, 4% statewide um, and overrepresented by uh, two and a half times um, in, the, in, the, in that population. Oh, excuse me, 1.8% of the population, but 4% of the positives. Native Americans are less than a percent of our population, but 2% of the positives. And Pacific Islanders are 0.43% of our population, but 3% of our positives. So it's, a, it's, it's very simple to see um, what it looks like at a state level um, for the overrepresentation of people of color among those who are testing positive and dealing with this crisis. What we're seeing on the front lines in our two counties um, is even um, highlighted at a, at a higher degree. So of this is, these are our testing, our testing data as of yesterday. Um, we, over the course since March, um, provided over 3,000 tests uh, to patients in our, and, and to the broader community that we serve. Um, of those, 300 have been positive. Um, and you can tell when 263 of the 303 were Latinx. That means 87% of our positive test results uh, are 
among Latinos in our community. Excuse me, but only 62% of those that we have tested are Latinx. So again, you just see, especially among a poorer community, among a community where, um, you know, you can't, you can't, uh, you're, you're essential workers, um, so you are expected to continue to work, um, and whether that's in agriculture or it's in manufacturing or it's um, in healthcare, um, at many of the people of color in our community are, con are expected to continue to work. Uh, are also more likely to not be able to work remotely. It is one of these moments when you very, it's visceral what it's like um, if you are poor in our community versus if you have privilege. Um, I get to work from home for four days a week, uh, but the folks who are getting this disease are not. They're working outside of their house every single day, um, and that's, that's, what, that's how this disease spreads. Um, and we're more likely to have complex health issues that are exacerbated by the virus. The fact that uh, Latinos have high levels of diabetes, heart disease, and high blood pressure is not a set of facts that we don't know. We already knew that going into this pandemic. And with, with the high rates of contracting this disease, the complications that arise from it are even more. So those are the, the pieces of how this disease magnifies itself in our community that um, are very easily understood. And yet one of the challenges that we find is that um, it, isn't, it doesn't seem to be raising alarm bells um, throughout the state. Um, oh yes, and I didn't mean to leave this, that Folks in these communities also have fewer support systems like vacation time, sick leave, or the ability to collect unemployment or to participate in the Federal CARES Act. While many folks um, across the country received a check um, in recognition of the economic challenges that they're facing as a result of this crisis, undocumented people who are on the front lines and contributing to our economies um, did not receive any benefits um, from the economic relief or unemployment uh, that was possible through the CARES Act. So what are we trying to do um, at Virginia Garcia? We are screening, screening, and doing more screening. We know that uh, if you can't identify who has the disease, you can't uh, make attempts to reduce the spread. Um, we know how the virus is spread and what means we need to be able to protect each other. Um, quarantine is critically important, but if you don't identify somebody, you can't do that. So um, when the first week that we were allowed as community health care providers to be able to begin to screen, Virginia Garcia launched uh, screening at every single one of our primary care clinics um, and it was drive up outside of the clinics uh, that began immediately. Uh, the next week, this was like the third week of March, we launched two drive-through screening sites, one um, in the heart of Washington County and another in the heart of Yamhill County, where we uh, began to, to screen people in a drive-through fashion, trying again to identify as many folks as we possibly could. 
uh, we began running public service ads in Spanish. It was immediately apparent that the folks we were seeing who were testing positive were Latino, and uh, that the messages, the weak, the, the messages that existed, which were weak to begin with, um, were even weaker uh, as they translated down into our community. And so that was a key place where we tried to start um, back in March. We also developed really important partnerships with our local governments and other CBOs. Washington County is the uh, largest county that we serve in, and Washington County was a tremendous partner with us, uh, bringing folks together who were concerned about the possible spread in migrant camps over the course of the summer. There are a number of migrant camps within Washington County, and so together with other CBOs and the county, we worked on both an education piece to be able to go out to the owners and managers of those camps um, and talk with them about uh, the new rules that the state had put in place uh, about how people should be living um, in, these in these houses uh, or trailers together um, and what kinds of means to sanitation and how to transport folks in a safer way. So um, that partnership was really important. As the counties received CARES Act funds, they have been very quick to work with us and engage with us in how we can get those resources out into the community um, to both communicate more effectively, but also to be supporting folks with the kinds of things that they need um, that we're seeing when, when families are struggling. Uh, we are securing donated masks. This is a disease where it is so simple, wear your mask at all times. And so, and yet because of the mixed messages that we got from the CDC at the beginning, uh, it was really hard to turn that wheel and begin to say that we really do need masks. Everyone needs one. So we've launched a big mask drive where we're taking donated masks, fabric masks, from the community to be able to give one to every single person that we test, um, and we try to give out as many masks as we possibly can. It's such a, a critical way to stop the spread of the disease. And then we're a navigating organization for the Oregon Worker Relief Fund. The Oregon Worker Relief Fund uh, was initiated by CAUSA. CAUSA is a statewide Latino-serving organization in Oregon, um, they realized very early on that there was no economic relief directed to undocumented workers, and they began um, working with other community-based organizations, private foundations, and ultimately with the state to secure a fund. So at this point, the state has invested $20 million into this fund um, to go directly to provide economic support for undocumented workers. The found, private foundations have paid for the administrative costs associated with um, this program so that those funds go directly to people. And the state has added an additional $10 million to support uh, agricultural workers who we know really need to quarantine and have the ability to have some support um, while quarantined. And private donors are also contributing to this fund. Um, I've looked across the country and it seems to me that there are very few places where this is happening at this sort of a scale, but I think um, it's happening in Austin. Brian might be able to tell us more about that. Um, 
but it's uh, it's such an important way that we as communities can respond to a big gap that was left by the CARES Act um, and federal legislation. So what else should be done? Um, we really need state or national-led campaigns. We need a single set of messages that are developed in partnership with communities in multiple languages on multiple platforms. It's really clear that our lack of federal leadership is having a dramatic impact on the ground and on the lack of um, clear focused messages to protect our communities. And so it's incumbent upon us as CBOs and it's incumbent on you all as local leaders to call for these campaigns and to work across uh, boundaries to be able to develop them at least at regional levels if we can't get to a state level. Um, you know, people, people need the same things and they need to understand um, many of the same things. And so we need to come together to be able to try to, to clarify the messages that are getting sent and to send them. Um, we need more resources. And as you heard about what, what Mayor Warren is seeing on the ground, people are really hurting. There's food insecurity, housing instability, support for quarantine that is necessary. This is a time where resources are required and finding them, digging deep and moving all the shell pieces around to uncover what is there. Um, it is that time for local, local communities to step up to support as well as state and I wish the feds. Um, we also need research. This is a public health crisis and a public, it needs a public health response. And that means that there should be research about how this is being transferred within communities of color and how we can tailor solutions directly to support um, what we're seeing in the data. I think one of the striking things um, in the first months of this uh, battling this disease that uh, the data as it affected communities of color was not, was not um, transparent. Um, it is now. And so it's there for the entire state to see, but it wasn't at the beginning. So if it's not transparent in your community, you need to make sure that it's transparent um, what is happening to different groups of color in your community with this, with this disease. Um, we can't begin to address the differential impacts if we don't understand how the problem is landing differently on our communities. So um, with that, I just want to say thank you again for the opportunity to chat with you some. I look forward to the Q&A and hopefully participating in a way to think through new solutions um, and to highlight the systemic racism that we're all seeing all too keenly right now. Thank you, Serena. Uh, great, uh, great job in really laying out for me a very, very clear example of why, why it's important to be disaggregating data, looking um, you know, highlighting the work that's happening in Oregon. Uh, as I said earlier at the beginning, we, we have prioritized the importance of disaggregating data as we are understanding the true impact of COVID-19. And I think even going further from uh, uh, Serena's presentation, understanding that as you understand, as you now see the data, how then do we begin to prioritize how we are targeting resources to the populations that need it the most? 
as you prepare for the rebuild and ensuring that equity is prioritized. So I really appreciate you naming that and bringing that into the space. Uh, so we will again have a chance to, you know, to ask uh, hopefully Serena some questions um, um, as we get to the end of our, uh, towards the end of the, the webinar. But I'd like to turn it over to our third panelist, uh, Brian Oakes, uh, with the City of Austin, uh, Chief Equity Officer. Uh, Brian has been leading the effort in Austin for several years now around their racial equity work, um, and really I'm glad to have him, you know, with the backdrop of everything that's going on, you know, with all the great work, Brian, that you're doing down in, in, um, in, in Austin, you're still also navigating through the same realities that every other city, um, town, and village across this country is is navigating through as we're understanding the disproportionate impact that it's having in our in our black, indigenous, and people of color. So great to have you, and I'd love for you to kind of um, give some context, if you will, before we talk about um, how it's impacting. I'd love to maybe share for the audience. I also just want to acknowledge NLC has uh, lifted up City of Boston as one of the profiles of, of, of cities that are advancing racial equity, so we encourage you to, to, to check out that profile. Uh, but Brian, if you could share with those that are listening how the city has been leading, the work you've been doing that's been centering racial equity, how you've been navigating it, if you could give a little summary for those, for them to understand how this is showing up in the city. Sure. So um, excited to be here. And uh, I'll start by talking a little bit about um, our history as a city of Austin. We established our equity office um, back in 2016, and it really... Uh, came from this pivotal moment uh, back in 2015 in which our city uh, shifted from being um, all at-large um, uh, council members elected to district-level district, uh, district level, uh, representation. So we switched to what we call now a 10-1 uh, system. And at the same time, there was a report that came out in 2015 uh, from a group called the Martin Prosperity Institute, which listed Austin as uh, the most economically segregated city in the United States. And the juxtaposition of that was in 2015, we had won this national war for being the most family-friendly city in the United States. And uh, that's our history. And, you know, we, um, I think about two years ago, we won sort of being the best place to live in the United States. But if you look at uh, our data around uh, childhood poverty, uh, black and uh, Latino kids are five and seven times more likely to live in poverty in our city. And so we are a, a city of these uh, racial extremes. And we really sort of push the, the question of can we truly be the most family-friendly city or can we truly be the best place to live uh, when we have such um, sort of huge uh, disparate racial inequities between these quality of life indicators. And I would say back in 2015, our community was really fed up and really wanted to see some change, uh, which really led way to us establishing uh, the equity office. And um, our office was formed around uh, a resolution uh, that council passed, which really directed our city manager to develop and begin to utilize uh, racial equity assessment tools across the entire department, and in particular with the budget process so that we could really begin to develop and adopt this equity lens. And that's really what the cornerstone of our equity office does for the city. Uh, we provide leadership and guidance and insight on racial equity across all functions. And the way that we do that at a baseline 
uh, is that we developed a racial equity assessment tool that all 42 of our city departments uh, participate in this process where they do racial equity assessments. Uh, we do a SWOT analysis for them. Uh, they, based upon those results, they do action plans with different interventions. We improve, we get better, we come back, we assess again. And for us, this work is long-term, a continuous improvement process for us uh, across the board. And in addition to that, uh, we're very similar to Rochester in that. Uh, we feel that as we call upon our staff to really get involved and sort of center this racial equity work and the things that they do, we have to give them the skills and the competencies to be able to do this work. And we spend a lot of our efforts and time on training and normalizing and developing our staff to have this racial equity lens. And we do that in partnership with community. Uh, we host a monthly undoing racism workshop uh, for city staff and community members as well to train together uh, and explore issues around ra uh, racism and better understanding about how institutional racism plays out in our community and in our systems and, and the structures that, that we've built and designed over all these years as our nation. And then we also spend a lot of time in uh, organizing and uh, building relationships with community, really trying to create people, a space for, for folks with lived experience uh, to really have their voices heard and integrated into the process of, of city government. And, um, and then this intentionality through this process of how we operationalize work and put it into action. And we see that reflecting in the way that we use our equity assessment tools, but we also get very involved uh, in specific uh, policy areas uh, that the city is undergoing right now. And, and, you know, more than ever right now, I would say the two biggest issues that we face are around uh, the pandemic with COVID-19. And then in addition to that, uh, we, like many other cities, are really grappling uh, with uh, police violence and our response to that violence and um, how do we sort of set ourselves on the journey to really reimagine and redefine what public safety means for our city and our community. Thank you for framing that, Brian. I actually want to pick up on those last two points because uh, I appreciate you naming the, the work, the foundation that's been laid, and I think that's important for the um, folks listening to just know how um, the, the work that it takes to lay a foundation. Um, and, but even in the midst of laying a good foundation, um, COVID-19 has happened, right? And, and also we've talked about the second pandemic, if you will, of the, the protests and the uprisings and the, the larger focus on um, uh, what does that mean as we look at um, dismantling and, or addressing systemic racism. So I'm curious if you could give some context uh, of given that foundation um, and the disparities you were seeing five, six years ago as you were launching this work, kind of how is, yeah, how, how is COVID-19, you know, as, we, as you understand the challenges of COVID-19, how is that playing out right now? And, and how are, are, you, are you able to respond differently given kind of where you are now and where racial equity is intensely being more centered in how you're working across departments or how you're thinking about strategy. So I'm kind of curious if you could speak to that. Sure. So I'm a, I'm a storyteller uh, by trade, and so I'll talk about my own personal experience. You know, back in March, um, we, you know, when I think for us as a city, the pandemic um, got really real 
when uh, our mayor made the decision to to cancel uh, our annual South by Southwest, which many of you have probably come to at some point in time in the city. And I think that that was sort of the moment for us where, like, wow, this is really real. Um, and, and, you know, uh, this is serious. And I think as a city, we were, re- you know, I would say for myself and, and, and my department, um, really focused on trying to sort of transition our staff over um, to uh, telework and uh, work remotely. And then at the same time, it was spring break, you know, and I was actually supposed to go on a cruise at the same time. And my cruise got canceled at the last minute, right? And and so I'm sitting at home and 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 knowing for sure, you know, I remember, you know, kind of calling the team together, saying, "Hey, we need to meet." And for us as a team, this was our first sort of um, major disaster for the city that that we've gone through as a as an office. And really, for us to sort of sit down and say, "We know that racial equity is going to play a huge role in this, and the way that it plays out." And we immediately started brainstorming around how do we insert ourselves into this response uh, because we know that it's going to be critical. And I say that because as we sort of watched this unfold, um, we really saw it's two disasters in one. There's the health portion of COVID-19, which is disaster, but then there's the, the, you know, the economic impact. That's, That's the disaster, too. And it's, if you know anything about um, the city of Austin, uh, sometimes we say we are the city divided east versus west. And um, that goes into our history around racism uh, and land use and zoning. And we were a city that, were, that was historically very uh, racially zoned. And so you will find the highest concentrations of pe- people of color in the what we call the eastern crescent of our city and the western portion of our city is predominantly uh, white, uh, mostly around 70-plus percent white, right? And so when you look at our Eastern Crescent, um, you know, we we sort of say one of our challenges at cities to do racial equity work is a lot of times we look at the issues or the emergencies that we have, and we, we work ahistorical a, uh, a with them, like, you know, this issue is just here and now, right? But if you look historically for us, um, you know, you would know that people of color in our city were uh, disproportionately working in uh, lower paying or hourly jobs um, that make them unable to provide care and to work to work. Um, Some years ago, our council uh, passed a paid sick leave ordinance um, that our uh, state sued us and it's tied up in court. And so uh, we have uh, huge numbers of people on hourly jobs that don't have access to paid sick leave, uh, mm-hmm. which you think in a pandemic would be very helpful right now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If you look at our, our health care landscape, um, most of our uh, private providers are uh, positioned central and west in our city, and they are huge sort of like tracks uh, of zip codes in uh, what we call our Eastern Crescent that that don't have private providers. Um, We rely primarily on a federally qualified health center uh, called Community Care uh, to deliver health care to thousands of people that are in our Eastern Crescent because a lot of our private providers, frankly, um, don't 
locate any of their business or offices there. And so in terms of access to testing, um, care, treatment, all those things, right? Um, and that's just sort of, you know, that's just like at the surface, right? We also had recently had a report that had come out about the racial wealth divide for our city um, in that uh, since 1980, uh, black and Latino families are actually uh, worse off financially than they were in 1980 because they have uh, a lower percentage of the median uh, uh, income of the city they do today than they did back in 1980. And, you know, roughly about 50 to 70 percent of black and Latinx families in the city are what they uh, sort of uh, determine as um, liquid asset poor, which is, is which is that, you know, they're less likely to have enough liquid assets assets to cover basic needs uh, if they went three months without income, right? And you, so you look at the number of people that either got furloughed or laid off, uh, so you start to see the economic impact of it, right? And so, you know, for us, um, you know, um, some of the things that we did to respond to that was that uh, we immediately put together uh, an equity guide and somewhat of a toolkit for our emergency operations center, and we basically sort of said that as we respond to the pandemic, uh, we just developed like these eight questions where we just sort of say, ask yourself these eight questions no matter it is what you're doing. So if you're putting up a testing site, um, you know, ask yourself, um, you know, do we have this aggregated data, right? Um, where is it going to be located at? Are the hours of operation accessible to people that are most vulnerable, right? Really just trying to take – uh, take staff through uh, a, a immediate sort of checklist to begin to sort of get to, to, you know, to these areas. And I think for us it's been this continuous improvement on, on our response, right, as we get better. Mm-hmm. I would say that our biggest challenge in the beginning was not having um, disaggregated data and uh, realizing that we have a lot of work to do uh, with our healthcare systems. We have private providers who are not accustomed to sharing information. And uh, the amount of legwork that has, has to be done uh, to even consolidate information from all the different providers that are doing testing in the community so that you can truly get um, a visual of what's happening citywide or countywide, right? And that's just been a big struggle, struggle of just getting everybody to share data, um, not less alone having demographic data, uh, you know, for everyone that's gotten tested. So it's been a journey. Uh, I'm kind of long-winded, so. <laughs> I no, like, uh, no, I, I, I appreciate. Yeah. I mean, the the journey is helpful to hear. I think for those listening, and uh, and I also just naming, um, but uh, appreciate what you're naming because as you talk about the pandemic, it also sheds light on what's possible, right? You know, as you're as you're looking at how decisions were made before about where services were offered, you really are addressing. Um, the, the foundation of institutional and structural racism. And um, in, in those policies, in those decisions, and in real time, trying to shine a spotlight on it. Uh, so I appreciate right. you kind of describing how that has created the opportunity for you to be able to do that. Um, and I know I want to pivot to our last panel, but let me ask, I don't want to lose without you naming, while that's going on, the second pandemic was the protest and the killing, not the, it wasn't the protest, but the killing of George Floyd and, and that erupted a lot of the protests and uprising. 
And so I'm wondering if, if there is, have, how have you, can you speak maybe briefly if you can, so we can hit our next panel, but I want you to at least share how it's playing out in Austin. How is that impacting or how have you leveraged um, you know, the foundation you have with the different departments? How are you working across departments or are you guys now tackling issues like dismantling um, the, the police system or reimagining public safety? Like are you, are you in a position now to, to take on some more bigger ideas? We are, you know, with the city of Austin, uh, in addition to George, George Floyd, uh, we had our own uh, local shooting of uh, unarmed black man, Mike Ramos, as well. Mm. And so uh, we, we were challenged with both of them. And uh, we are on that journey. We say that it's a journey for us to really reimagine and redefine what public safety means uh, for our city. And it's really one of our top priorities for our city manager and our council right now. And we're in the process of uh, starting a um, – we have sort of a, a core leadership team uh, within the city, but we also are developing a core leadership team uh, with community activists who have been front and center in this process. And uh, we are actually getting ready to sort of launch – uh, this whole effort for us to to really reimagine it, and I think for us it's 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 in a lot of the conversations that um, I'm having with leadership, it is really sort of pushing us to go beyond just reform, mm -hmm. because I would say that we've seen the history of of reform, which is you know we change a few policies, uh, we change a few tactics or protocols, but then what happens? We sort of revert back to the meaning again. And so we really have to push ourselves to, to imagine. And I sort of say that's the hardest part of this process is really imagine different responses, imagine different ways of being. I was in a meeting, and, and, and I said one of the things that I imagined is that we would have a police force that doesn't carry guns on patrol. And I had some people laugh at me. I had one person, he's a friend of mine, he said, this is America. What are you talking about? And I had to tell him, like, you know there's there's places in the world where that actually exists. But that's not so far out there, right? But dare that we even dream or that we can imagine uh, what it could be like for us, right? And, you know, and I think with that is also for us, as we go on this journey, we also need to understand and be clear about the history of policing and the history of how that institution was designed. Mm -hmm. And and some would say because of the history of the institution of policing, it is doing very much well what it was intended to do from the very mm -hmm. beginning, right? And those are the conversations that we have to really get into. I feel like that could be its own webinar <laughs> for <laughs> us, right? <laughs> Um, yeah. But I think those are the conversations that need to be to, to need to be had, and I feel like this is an opportunity for us to dream, and this is an opportunity for us to imagine uh, safety in such a different way, right? And I think the way that we've historically defined safety, the reality is that as black and brown folks, we have felt unsafe, and those are the, those are the things, the challenges that we face as we go on this journey. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Brian. Um, Dr. Maria Peoples, um, our, the Deputy County Manager, Chief Health, uh, Health Officer from Coquitino County, Arizona. Appreciate you joining us. And as I think about the sequencing of our panelists, it's, 
I, it was, I don't think it was intentional, but as we talk about the two pandemics, we started off with Mayor Warren, New York, um, and uh, the state that got hit the hardest first, right, as we saw how this was playing out. And we kind of gradually kind of went from Oregon to then to Texas to Arizona, where we've now started to see surges. Um, and, the, and and even how we're understanding the impact of it. And so kind of with that backdrop, Dr. Peoples, I'm curious if you could kind of share about the work that you're doing, how it's impacting, um, the particularly as we talk about COVID-19, uh, your county in particular, um, the indigenous population. You can also speak to if there's other work you're doing that it's playing out in other ways. But appreciate you could bring that and give us some insights to how it's playing out in, in your county. Well, thank you so much, and I really appreciate being here and uh, listening to my colleagues on the panel. It's incredibly enlightening. And so, you know, as you talked about the sequence of it, I was, I, for a minute I was thinking, huh, I'm not sure I would agree. I would think that indigenous communities have been hit um, hard extremely throughout COVID, but as we know, media doesn't always cover communities of color and indigenous populations. And so I think now it's starting to come to light a little bit more as Arizona as a whole has had surges. Um, but I'm sad to say that our indigenous populations have um, been hurt for quite some time. Um, so again, thank you. And as some background, uh, Copenhagen County is incredibly rich with cultural diversity and is home to many tribal nations. Uh, we are the second largest geographically sized county in the nation with almost 19,000 square miles, which is larger than several states. And I share that because we, while we're so large, we're also incredibly sparsely populated. We're very rural, and that lends to a difficulty in addressing many of the tribal communities' needs. Um, so just to put it in perspective, and all of our tribal nations across the county have uh, been adversely impacted by COVID-19, but Navajo Nation has been impacted uh, the hardest. And so what I can share is that Native Americans as a whole within our county um, have about two and a half times more likelihood uh, than their white counterparts of developing COVID. And unfortunately, Native Americans have accounted for 88% of all COVID-related deaths within our county. They also account for 75% of all hospitalizations related to COVID. And so I share that just to give some you know, data points of just really how uh, tragic it has played out across our tribal communities. Tribal leaders have been incredibly proactive in trying to establish public health measures so they can effectively curb the spread of the virus. Uh, some examples of that is they've initiated weekend lockdowns early on in the COVID response, daily curfews, travel advisories. Uh, they were some of the first in the nation to require face coverings, um, along with other precautions. We have seen those measures help in terms of bringing down uh, the COVID cases, but a continued challenge has been visitors and others that have not uh, perhaps understood or wanted to comply with some of those precautions, such as the curfews and lockdowns, and they've continued to travel and recreate within those sovereign lands. And so that's, that has been a real challenge. Another contributing factor to the high rates of COVID infection on tribal lands is the lack of built infrastructure. Uh, examples of that include uh, the lack of electricity and running water. 
some of the basic infrastructure that most of us take for granted and just assume that it's in all neighborhoods. Uh, many tribal lands don't have those things. So having limited access to clean water, of course, makes sanitizing and all the hand washing and some of the basic protocols to help reduce the spread of the virus very difficult to follow. Another factor is the historic lack of health care, both in rural areas and, of course, for minority-comprised communities. And the limited access uh, that tribal members have had to medical care, coupled with their higher rates of chronic health issues anyway, have really made them more susceptible to contracting COVID, as well as having wor worse outcomes if they do contract COVID, which is demonstrated by the death rate. Uh, so that's just a real quick overview of how it has impacted our tribal communities, and that's really just on the health side and not so much even the social impacts that we're seeing across our, our minority communities that the other panelists spoke to. Uh, there are many social impacts as well as the health impacts and economic impacts um, that are, you know, a double and triple whammy, if you will, to indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, thank you, uh, Dr. Peoples, for, to, for uh, giving us a much clearer context of how this, the impact has been playing out even before all of the additional attention from media um, is talking about Arizona. Um, and I think I, I appreciate just being checked on that myself, which is like I'm hearing it because now the media is talking about it. But I think what your name is, I think so important to name that doesn't mean that it still hasn't been disproportionately impacting the indigenous community in the state, even though the rise we're seeing might be happening more across the across the state. So I appreciate you naming that and as you talk about the importance of, of kind of what's happening and how um, uh, the Navajo um, Nation and, and um, other indigenous communities are responding in Arizona. I'm wondering if you could speak specifically to the programs. Are there, can, are there uh, specific innovative programs that you've established or encountered uh, during the pandemic that, uh, that you could speak to? Yeah, thank you so much for asking. Um, so in addition to being the Deputy County Manager for Cognito County, I've had the privilege of serving as the Incident Commander for our county response since March. It's been an incredibly humbling experience as I see how it has impacted um, different communities of color specifically. And so while some of these things aren't innovative at this stage of COVID, I'm incredibly proud that we were able to stand up many things um, early in March. And just an example of that, uh, we were the first drive-through specimen collection site in the state of Arizona. And more importantly than being the first, we've sustained. We continue to operate drive-through specimen collection sites five days a week. And what's so heartwarming about that to me is that we are free of charge and open to everybody regardless of income or insurance status. And as we're hearing on the news, access to testing is incredibly difficult. So we've been able to continue doing that. We've also implemented several mobile collection sites because we realize that due to our 19,000 square miles, lack of transportation, and the fact that many families can't afford to travel and can't always come to us. So we've been able to deliver those uh, testing sites at various times to our outlying areas. Another really innovative thing that we have done, and probably the one that I'm most proud of our team, is that since the very beginning of COVID, we've operated a tier one alternative care facility for at-risk populations. And so what that really means is that we have operated a full-scale hotel uh, for those that are unsheltered are living below the poverty line and that are COVID impacted or COVID impacted families. And those services have included telemedicine and providing uh, three meals a day so that people can recover and get back on their feet. Now, I'm also excited to share that, you know, through our emergency operations center and our health teams, 
We've moved uh, forward with disease investigation, contact tracing, surveillance, monitoring, and we've got an 89% success rate of uh, contacting people. And as you'll, people have probably seen on the national news, that is high. There's many communities that are at 17%, 20%. So we've really tried to put a lot of focus on that because we really believe that by testing and notifying people, that's you know how we're going to arrest this virus. Um, communicating is also incredibly important. We've delivered a lot of messaging, whether it's through various types of social media, radio broadcasts, and specific languages. We deliver all of our communications in English, Spanish, and Navajo. Uh, we operate a COVID-19 call center for community members seven days per week and uh, have since the beginning of COVID. So really trying to do some of those things. Um, perhaps one of the more recent innovative practices is we've partnered with Northern Arizona University to develop a COVID-aware enhanced food handler certification. And so for those food eateries and establishments that want to have this certification, they have to go through uh, some online training modules to really talk about safe food handling practices, physical distancing, those other CDC recommendations, and then they receive an additional certificate and they're able to display it. And we wanted to be able to incorporate some pride for our establishments as we're asking them to do these hard things, and we understand that it's hitting them economically as well as they uh, reduce how many people they serve so they can meet physical distancing standards. Uh, we've also offered business reopening plan reviews as technical guidance rather than rule, um, whether it's for schools, which of course is a hot topic right now, so we've uh, offered that service to any school, um, K-12 through or higher ed, and to any business wanting to open to churches. Um, houses of worship have been incredibly important um, as people want to feel that uh, social connection through this time of physical distancing. And so our goal, again, is to help everybody try to reopen safely. So um, I'll stop there. Uh, those are, you know, really what highlight our innovative practices. Yeah, no, a lot. So many, so many follow-up questions I would want to ask. Um, and um, but I, I want to make sure we create space for folks to ask some questions to the panelists. Let me just pause. I'm hearing a little bit of feedback, and let me just ask the rest of the panelists if you can make sure you mute yourself, just so we're not picking up on any potential feedback. Um, the, the, but you named a number of things, Dr. Peoples, as it relates to a lot of the practices and programs. And, and I'm curious if, if there's a guiding strategy that, that you're using that that's uh, working, um, that if you could speak to for those that are listening, like, wow, there's a whole lot going on in your county. And, and if there's kind of a, is there a framework in, or strategy that you're using that you could share with those that are listening? You know, like everybody, COVID has been so fluid and sometimes things change daily and multiple times a day. So I don't, the one true thing that I can say is that we are committed to using science as our guide and staying true to the public health mission. And that, that really has been our guiding principle as we make hard decisions, as we engage in conversations with our community about what we can and can't do. And really, I'm trying, again, trying to follow that uh, North Star, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, it's crazy to think that you're the point about using science as a radical thought as a guiding star, but it's important <laughs> to name <laughs> as we talk about how important it is not to forget that. That was not intended to be a political statement, just kind of naming that as we acknowledge our reality. Um, so this this has been great. I mean, I, I'm mindful we have about about 10 minutes left, and so so grateful to each of our panelists for bringing such rich content into the discussion. And I've been popping over and, and trying to check in on them. There are lots of questions, so there's a challenge in front of us about how many we're going to be able to get through with the time that we have. 
But let me turn it over to our, our, our moder uh, operator, if you moderator, or I'm the moderator. But um, yeah, if we could, to our question um, for folks managing the questions, if you could uh, share with us questions that you're getting that you have for the panelists. Absolutely. And just a reminder to participants to submit your question. Simply type into the chat box located at the lower left of your screen, um, and then be sure to click that Send button. Um, our first question, is it possible to get website information for some of the programs that you mentioned, um, real initiative and more information on the emotional um, emancipation circles? Uh, yeah, that's a quick answer on real. We can absolutely send that as a follow-up. And I think the emancipation oh. circle, Mayor Warren, that's to you. Do you guys have uh, information on that you can send out? Yes, we can send that. I'll send that over to you, Leon, and then you can uh, add it to the real initiative work. Great. Wonderful. Thanks that. so much. Yeah. Um, here's our next question. How do you turn racial healing into change in policies and systems? Hmm. How do you turn racial healing into change? It's uh, a good one, in, the, in policies and systems. Um, I know we started talking about that in the Rochester Dialogue, but I'm not sure if Mayor Warren you wanted to speak to that or anyone else. I can start um, just momentarily and then open it up to anyone else that wants to speak to it. Um, I think that first you have to acknowledge that it exists. And as um, I believe Brian was saying from Austin, you have to show the data that supports the position that racism in this particular policy or procedure uh, has a impact had an impact. So the reason why government started to change redlining was because you could really look at that policy and see the impact that it had on, on racism and racial equity in different communities. Um, when we start to look at where investments are being made as far as access to capital for businesses or uh, access to capital to purchase a, a home or a car, and you see that it is easier for people of color uh, to purchase a car than it is for them to get a mortgage for a home, then you can start to really deal with those issues. And so I think that the data is very important uh, to be able to show that the policy or the procedure that we're looking to change um, is directly impacted by a person's race. And then um, you can change it to intentionally deal with that disparity and monitor it to make sure that, that those changes that you're making actually make sense. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Those that's, that's uh, naming the, the if you're particularly if you're a city leader, right? How are you not just creating spaces for the healing, but you're also creating spaces for the structural changes, right? And both need to happen if you're going to be creating a space for um, for prioritizing healing. So thanks for really really speaking explicitly to that. And not sure from talents, any others really taking on the healing work, racial healing work, and how that's tied to. Uh, policy change, work that, that you're doing within your city or county? Okay. All right, let me, let me with a couple minutes, I'm looking at a couple of these questions, and Brian, I'm seeing there's, there's a question about wanting to see the equity tool. Um, I know we have a copy of it, but if you wanted to, I don't know if there's an updated version, if you wanted to share with us, we can send that out to the group. 
Um, there is also a question, uh, Dr. Peoples, about your Tier 1 alternative facility. Um, and if there's folks want to learn more about the Tier 1 alternative facility, is, is there a place, too, that we could send out more information for people to, to learn more about that? Absolutely. We'd be happy to share. You know, it'd probably be easiest. Um, you're welcome to share my email. And then if people contact okay. me, I can connect them to resources. Great. Great. That would be great. We'll make sure that if folks are happy to do, if willing to do that, we'll make sure we include your emails as well in that. Um, I know we have, I'm, I'm trying to go through the questions here quickly, but I am, let me just uh, pause to see if our folks looking at the questions have any good ones that we could ask with a couple minutes that we have left. Right. It looks like we've got time for probably one or two questions. So if you yep, if you scroll through and see one that you want to answer. All right. So instead, so here's interesting. Instead of sticking to the fair uh, left ideologies, wouldn't it be a good option to integrate all along to deal with the ongoing pandemic from the political point of view? So this is, I, I like this question in the sense of acknowledging that we're not always singing to the choir, right? And, and is there a sense that we, in the work that you're doing, is it feeling like, is it leaning left, far left into the, uh, right here, that the progressive side of it? And so is there, is there a way to think about how to integrate all along the, uh, integrate along, that deals, uh, integrates more, more perspectives? So I'm curious um, if, uh, Brian or um, or Dr. Peoples, if you guys are navigating through that in terms of how you're balancing strategy and messaging and bringing multiple people to the table, I, I think for me um, this is sort of the um, this is the axis of of why racial equity work is important, and the reality is that historically. Uh, we all, in, in all caps and quotations, have not been brought along. And um, I would say the most controversial thing about our office and what, and what we do is leading with race. And it is this notion that, um, that we can't be explicit about that. Uh, because if you look at all of our leading quality of life indicators, it is by far um, the biggest predictor. And I think that that's the fundamental definition of equity. Equality and equity are two different things. Equality is, is, is in its notion giving everyone the same thing. Equity is really about understanding where people are and where we need to get them to be. And that means we need to be intentional and we'll need to be different and we'll need to have different solutions for different uh, folks in our community. And so I think that to me that that is the conversation to not shy away from. And the work that we're doing, we are intentional about um, the work that we do with these populations that have been marginalized historically. And that in the case of COVID, where we see the disparities, right? And so um, our, our strategy to try to sort of uh, be everything for all isn't working. And if it was working, we wouldn't see these disparities the way that we do now. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I, I am mindful that we have probably reached our end, um, but I'm grateful. Uh, let me just say before I turn it, turn it back over to our um, uh, to our final moderator to wrap us up. Um, 
you know, if they're, let me just say thank you. Thank you to each of you for your for bringing your voice and the, the work that you're doing, um, and how you're navigating in each of each parts of this country, um, and your commitment to this work. Thank you for helping us that are listening, kind of continue to be be inspired by the work and walk away with additional nuggets. So I express my gratitude to each of you. Um, and with that, I will turn it back over uh, to our final moderator to wrap us up. Thank you, and with that, we must conclude today's webinar. A special thank you to our presenters and to everyone who joined us today. Please take a moment now to complete a brief evaluation of today's program by clicking the evaluation link to the left of the screen. Your comments and suggestions are important to us as we plan future events. The survey must be completed in order to receive a certificate for this program. You can also access the survey from your ICMA University dashboard by clicking on the program title once you are logged in. Thank you for your participation in today's webinar. We hope you will join us again soon. Today's program is copyright 2020 by the International City-County Management Association with all rights reserved. And this does conclude today's program. Thanks for joining. You may now disconnect.